turn to Judges chapter 16 in your Bibles with me, if you would. This is not a typical Mother's Day message. I understand that. I think that God can, can use this, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful about some of the, the benefits to, to moms through this, but we'll talk more about that later. But let me, let me begin. I'm going to read Judges chapter 16. And I'm going to begin in verse 4. So we're at the end of Samson's life. This is the last chapter dealing with Samson. Samson takes up more space in the book of Judges than any other judge. And we're coming to the end of his life. And we come to verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And By what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dry, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And so Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the, with the web and fasten it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them, of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the Lord of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. And 
bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. When the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he, he entertained them. They made him stand between the, the pillars and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me fill the, the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on, on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he, he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's. Upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. And Heavenly Father, we do ask for you this morning to open this, this passage to us, these, the story of Samson. And we would ask that you would give us grace to be obedient to you as we read your words. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I took a, a Greek tragedy class one time, and, and the professor of the class was everything you would want a, a Greek tragedy professor to be. He was eccentric. He was, he was brilliant. He had this beautiful, glowing white head of hair. He was, um, he, was, he was very passionate about the Greek language and culture. He was just the, the, the perfect Greek professor. And he began talking about Greek tragedy. I remember the, the first day of class, he, he shocked us as he was talking about what a Greek tragedy was. He, he began talking about what a Greek tragedy was. And then he, he said, we, we in our culture use the term tragedy far too loosely. And he began listing off all these disasters and terrible things that had happened and saying, you know, whenever this person died, that wasn't a tragedy. And it just sounded very strange. Or whenever this accident happened, you know, the newspaper said the, this tragic 10-car pileup, it wasn't tragic. Those, those deaths weren't tragic. And he kind of talked about these different things that, that we, we call tragic, but he said weren't really tragic. He says, technically, a tragedy is this. A tragedy is whenever something bad happens, but it's not just something bad happen, happening. It's something bad happening to a, a certain type of person, like a heroic person. And that bad thing happening to this heroic person, this certain type of person, for a certain type of reason, like some character flaw 
in that person causes this bad thing to happen, and it leads to a certain type of consequence, and it allows the, the person who hears the story to have kind of this, this emotional reaction, what the Greeks call uh, catharsis, this, this cleansing emotion. He goes, that's technically what a tragedy is. A tragedy isn't just something bad happening. It's, it's a tragic hero having something bad happen to him because of a certain character flaw that he has, and then it, it producing a result in the, the hearts of the people who hear it. Now, you can argue that definition if, if you want, but I think that even my Greek tragedy professor would agree that the story of Samson is, is a tragic story. In the story of Samson, you, you have this guy with, with everything to gain, with, with all these, 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 these gifts that God has given him, the ability for almost unlimited potential, and yet because of his character flaw, because of his inability to restrain his impulses, his absolute lack of desire to follow after God, it leads to, to tragedy, time and time again until his, his ultimate downfall. And as we hear the story of Samson, as we read the story of Samson, there, there should be a result that, that we feel, a, a response that happens as we read the story that helps us grow in our relationship with the Lord. Here in the story of Samson, we have a first row seat, and we can watch the way that, that sin wreaks havoc in a person's life. Samson, I believe, stands as a picture of Israel, and we'll talk about that more this morning. But, but not only can Israel look at the story of Samson and see itself, and it's walking away from Yahweh God, you and I can look at the story of Samson, and as we look at the story of Samson, we can, can be aware of how we too might be tempted to think that we can handle our sin the way that Samson feels like he can handle his sin. We're tempted to be just like him. We're tempted to believe that we can handle sin casually. We can keep our sin secret. We're foolish in that way as well. And brothers and sisters, in reality, we've deceived ourselves regarding sin so often and deceived ourselves regarding the consequences of, of sin. And the story of Samson can help us step back and, and see the foolishness of failing to take sin seriously, of failing to walk in obedience to God. In fact, here's... Here's the, the main idea that I want us to think about, because it's not just bad news. Here's, here's what I want us to think about. As we examine Samson's tragic life, we're reminded of the destructiveness of our sin and the deliverance of our Savior. So as we look at Samson, we, we, we see what our lives can look like as well if we fail to take sin seriously. But the good news is, not only do we see us in Samson, we also see Samson pointing us to our Savior. And so as we look at the story of Samson, we see the destructiveness of our sin. We're reminded of that. We, we step back and we're, we're in awe of the, the havoc that sin can wreak in a person's life. And then we also are in awe of the incredible deliverance that our Savior can bring. So let's, let's do this. I want to real quickly give us an overview of Samson's life. We'll look at chapters 13 through 16, and then I want us to, to draw some, some principles here in just a few minutes. So we're going to talk about what Samson reminds us about our sin. We're going to talk about the deliverance of our, of our Savior. But before we do those two things, let me just give you a little bit of an overview. And so look 
at Judges. We're in Judges chapter 16, but you go back to Judges 13, right? And in Judges 13, we talked about this a little bit more last week. In Judges chapter 13, Samson's birth is announced. He's told, his parents are told that Samson is going to deliver his people. He's going to save his people. And then you come to the very end of chapter 13 and look at the last verse. It says, and the Spirit of the Lord, this Samson's been born in the last verse, and then in the previous verse, and then the last verse, it says, and the Spirit of the Lord began to, to stir him. In other words, Samson, even from this, this first appearance of the Spirit of the Lord in the story of Samson, it's, it's obvious that there's this, there's this tension within Samson's life. It's, it's not a, a peaceful relationship, his relationship with the Lord. There's, there's, there's stirring. There's, it's, it refers to a disruption. And then we come to chapter 14. And chapter 14 begins with Samson going down to a Philistine city. It's about four miles away from where he lived. And so he goes to this Philistine city, and Samson encounters this Philistine woman. And he goes back to his mom and dad. He says, Mom and dad, met this girl. I want to marry her. She's a Philistine. And his parents say, let's, let's think about this. And, and this, this desire that Samson has for this Philistine woman sets in motion a, a series of things that are going to happen in chapters 14 and 15. It all, it all begins here with Samson desiring this Philistine woman. His parents say it's a bad idea, and then Samson says, I don't care, I want her, and then it says that in, in the text that Samson insists to his father in verse 3, get her for me, and then he says, for she is right in my eyes. Th this is what I desire, it's, it's right in my eyes, and that expression right in my eyes, is an expression that we're going to see several times in the book of Judges in the coming chapters. Like Samson, Israel is doing what is right in their own eyes. They desire something, they want it, they do it. There's no king, They're not looking to God for direction and guidance. And then verse 4 of chapter 14 gives us kind of the the theological truth that helps us understand all that takes place in the coming chapters. It says, His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking, the Lord, that is, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And so, Samson's life, even though Samson is going to be a person who doesn't walk in obedience to the Lord, God is going to use that to accomplish his purposes. All that happens over the coming chapters is part of God's sovereign plan to deliver his people. Samson tells his mom and dad, look, seeing this Philistine girl, I want her. Parents say, look, wouldn't you look at home, at, at uh, the, the covenant people of God for a wife? And Samson says, nope, this is what's right in my eyes. She's good to me. Get her for me. And so his parents acquiesce. They go down to the place that this woman is from, and they begin to make the wedding arrangements. And at some point, and it's kind of unclear exactly when all this happens and the traveling back and forth from this town to that town. But at some point, Philistine, uh, in the Philistine vineyards, Samson encounters a lion, and his parents aren't around at this point. And it says in the text that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he kills the lion with his bare hands. And at some other point later, he travels back by that same vineyard. He sees the carcass of the lion, and there in the carcass of the lion, some, some bees have made a a nest, and there's honey, and apparently no murder hornets around, and so he goes there, and he takes some of the honey from the carcass of the lion. He eats it. He gives it to his parents, not telling them where it came from, and so they've all defiled themselves with the, by eating from this, this dead carcass of a lion. 
the wedding plans continue in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 14. And uh, the, the wedding does not go well, right? Samson is given some 30 companions. Perhaps the Philistines gave him these 30 companions to kind of act like guards. It's, it's kind of not very clear in the text why he has these 30 companions. But they're sitting around, and there's kind of this antagonistic relationship between Samson and these 30 companions. And the 30 companions and Samson make a, a little bit of a bet. Samson says, I'm going to give you a riddle, and if you can solve the riddle, I'll give you each a change of clothes. If you can't solve the riddle, you each give me a set of clothes. And they say, go ahead, tell us your riddle. And he says in verse 14, here's your riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. So he's basically telling them the story of the lion and the honey. And the, the women who are the, 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 sorry, the companions who are wanting his, him to, to lose that riddle begin to, to pester his wife. It says on the fourth day, they have a week to, to solve the riddle. It says on the fourth day, they go to Samson's wife and say, make your husband tell us what the riddle is, and if you don't, we're going to burn you in your father's house. Have you invited us here to pover impoverish us? And so Samson's wife goes to Samson or his fiance, and they... She begins to beg him to tell him to tell her the answer to the riddle. Finally, she says, you know, if you love me, you say you love me, but you won't tell me. Finally, he caves. He tells her the riddle. And she goes, she tells the 30 companions. They go to Samson, and they, uh, they tell him, we've solved a riddle. What's, what's stronger than a lion? What's sweeter than honey? And Samson goes to another nearby town, kills 30 people, grabs their clothing, gives it to them, and then in, leaves just in, enraged at his, his bride. So in, in short, uh, the wedding had a wager. It had uh, a, a bride who was crying at the bridegroom the entire week. It ended in 30 people dying. I mean, it just, you know, if there was a reality show at the time on bad weddings, this would be at the top of the list, right? Didn't go well. Then, again, the, 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 the things continue to escalate. Chapter 15 begins. And, and by the way, what have we seen about Samson so far? We, we see that Samson is a person who, when he, when he sees something that he wants, that his flesh desires, he's, he's, he's like there's, there's, no, there's no governor on him. There's no control. He, he sees this woman. He wants her. He's going to have her. He, he sees uh, honey in a line. doesn't care where it comes from. He's going he's gonna to eat it. He has no control on his impulses, on his flesh. He's a fleshly person. And yet at the same time, what else do we see? We see that the Spirit of the Lord is working through Samson. There's this, this tension here. Here's how one commentator put it. Samson is an immature, incensed, out-of-control youth. But at the same time, he is a, a weapon in God's hand, being propelled relentlessly and unerringly toward his destiny as Israel's Savior. As chapter 15 begins, we see that Samson's poor wife is given to one of Samson's companions, the, the, the chief companion, the, bri the um, best man, essentially. And she's essentially given in marriage to a person who had threatened her and her father with death. So you feel bad for her circumstances as well. Chapter 15 begins, and Samson, again, wants what he wants. He decides, 
you know what, I do want my wife. He goes to his father-in-law. His father-in-law says, look, I, I thought you hated her, so I gave her to the best man. And Samson says, well, now I'm going to have my vengeance again. He takes 30 foxes. He ties their tails together, torches, uh, puts torch in them as well, sets them loose on the fields of the Philistines. And then the Philistines get mad and burn his uh, father and um, uh, uh, his father-in-law and his his wife. And so ultimately they, they do what they had said they were going to do. Samson responds with, a, it says, with a great blow in chapter 15. And then he goes and he stays in a, a cave. The Philistines come to the cave. They demand that the men of Judah give him up. The men of Judah come to Samson and say, hey, we need to give you up. They bind him, give him to the Philistines. Samson is released from the ropes. Uh, through his strength, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and it says that he, he does this another great fight, right? It says that in verse 15, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put it in his hand, and took it, and with it struck a thousand men. And then Samson is tired. He calls upon the Lord, and the Lord provides water for him. His spirit returns, and he's revived. And that's chapters 14 and 15, right? Then chapter 16, kind of part two of Samson's story, with Samson and Delilah. We see Samson go down to visit a prostitute in the first part of chapter 16. The Philistines say, okay, we've got him now. But Samson simply gets up at night, picks up the gates of the city, walks, and sets them out on top of a hill. And then the story of Delilah that, that we read earlier, where Delilah continues to pester him, to give him the, the secret of his strength, and finally he acquiesces. Now, and it costs him his life, ultimately. But even in his death, we see him doing the work of, of God in freeing his people from the, the bondage of the Philistines. Now, now, what do we do with this story, right? I mean, this is a guy who is physically invincible. We, he comes to, to chapter 16, and as we see him picking up the, the doors of the gate of the city, and they're confident they have Samson this time, he just lifts them up, and, and there's, there's nothing they can do to stop him. I mean, this is a guy who is physically invincible. And yet, he is spiritually weak, so weak. And in verses 4 through, through 22 of chapter 16, you, you see that weakness spiritually played out as, as he continues to trust Delilah. His words seem so obvious and transparent, but Samson so desperately wants that closeness of intimacy. He, he wants that, that relationship with this woman, and he doesn't grasp how wrong he is in the way that he's pursuing it. It's, it's a picture here of idolatry. It's a picture of Israel's desire for the things that only God can provide and pursuing it in ways that God has said they should not pursue it. Now, there are some things we can learn from this. Let's, let's first of all talk about this. Let's first of all talk about what Samson reminds us about our sin. Okay? Let's first of all talk about what Samson reminds us about our sin. Number one, in Samson, we see our own temptation to be ruled by our flesh. There are many aspects to, to our flesh and the deeds of the flesh. Remember the, that word flesh, essentially in, in the Bible, flesh means that which is within us that is in opposition to God. 
So the Spirit desires to glorify God, and the purpose of our life is to bring glory to, to God. That aspect that's within me that desires to worship myself instead of God, that wants to, to thwart God's purposes to be glorified, that's my flesh. That, that self-worship, that's my flesh. Remember the deeds of the flesh in Galatians. Uh, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, uh, divisions, dissensions, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, Paul says in Galatians, I, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Samson, we see our temptation to be ruled by those things, to be ruled by our flesh. Samson's lust and his immorality show us that he is a man who wants what he wants. He's going to pursue his fleshly desires. And there's, there's an amazing contrast between how physically strong he is and how spiritually weak. He is unable to resist the desires of his flesh. Now, in our culture, we encounter a culture that is ruled by its flesh. We see that temptation to be ruled by the flesh played out over and over again in all sorts of ways in our culture. In fact, what's interesting is our culture even uses expressions that seem to indicate it believes that it's controlled by its, by its fleshly desires, even though it wouldn't use the term flesh. Now, let me just give some examples. I'm going to give a lot of examples from the area of, of sexual immorality because that's where Samson struggles. And think about how our culture describes sexual sin. We can't help sexual sin. You, you talk to young people, and, you, and you're, you're, uh, our culture says, look, young people, you can't control your urges. You can't control your desires. All you can do is kind of minimize the consequences of those things. It, it tells Our culture tells us, look, men... You weren't biologically made for monogamous, faithful relationships. All you can do is kind of manage your, your desires. We use words like, like addiction to show, look, you, you can't help doing the, the bad things you're going to want to do. And so uh, whatever you're attracted to, whatever you desire sexually, that's just kind of how you are. What is that? That's, that's enslavement. That's enslavement. My, my point is our culture views, views sin, in particular here sexual sin, in such a way that they acknowledge this reality. We're enslaved to our flesh. We're ruled by our flesh. Now, again, I'm going I'm to quote a little bit from a book uh, a couple times in the remainder of our time this morning. This is a little PG, and uh, I know, <laughs> I'm thinking Mother's Day. Is this really what I want to say on Mother's Day? And, and I kind of wrestled with that a little bit, but but it's, it's what the text is talking about, one. And, and secondly, um, here's the reality. If you look at where we are right now, just today, um, May 2020, um, the reality is that, that, that pornography use is, is up significantly right now with shelter in place and, and access to the Internet and, and those sorts of things. And um, that, that's where we are. And, and I know there are people in our church who are, who are there this morning who are struggling with this. And there are husbands, and, and wives as well, but I'm going to speak a little more particularly to, to men this morning because that's the perspective of the story. Um, what an amazing Mother's Day gift this would be if we could help some men honor their marriage commitments more, more faithfully, right? In the book, uh, Wired for Intimacy, subtitled How Pornography Hijacks the Male Mind, 
William Struthers says this. He says, our brains were designed by God for intimacy. That's, that's why God has designed our brains the way that he has. And, and pornography, he argues, works to destroy that divine design. Listen to what he says. Although many men claim that they're in control, the reality is that their behavioral patterns show a lack of control, and they are de- in denial, not control. Now, that's true for sexual sin. It is true for so many types of sin. We are enslaved. We're ruled by our flesh, and we see that in Samson. Now, here's, here's the second thing I want us to think about. In Samson, we also see our willingness to deceive and be deceived as we pursue our idols. Samson wants what he wants, and in that pursuit, he continues to deceive people. He deceives his mom and dad. He deceives, um, he, he deceives uh, Delilah as, as he tries to respond to her. He wants what he wants, and he'll deceive when it fits his purposes. But we also see in Samson what? We see a, a man who is deceived by others, and, and it seems willingly so. Why in the world? You read the story in chapter 16 of Samson and Delilah. Why in the world would he trust Delilah? He, he tells her, look, you know, you, you uh, bind me with bowstrings that are fresh, then I, I can't, uh, can't escape that. He wakes up, and, he, and he's bound in bowstrings. What is he thinking? We have this front row seat watching this man's life unravel, and, and we think, why is he so foolish? And as we, we step back and we look at our lives, we go, oh, right. I, I'm foolish as well. As, as I think that I am strong enough to deal with my own sin in my own flesh, I'm a fool. I think that I can handle my, my anger. I think that I can handle my greed. I think that I can handle my lust. I think that I can handle my, my, my laziness on my own. I, I'm foolish. I think I can handle my, my greed. I, I'm, I'm a fool. Maybe you saw, <laughs> maybe you saw this, uh, this story this past week. I, I laughed because it turned out okay. Maybe you saw the story of a... I think it was a Utah state trooper who was pursuing this car, and the, the car was kind of weaving across the highway. And the state trooper pulled over the, the car, and he, he walked around to the side of the car to, to see what was happening with this driver. And the driver opens the door, and, and it's a five-year-old little boy. <laughs> he had driven for a couple miles, and, and he, had, he had gotten upset at his mom because she, she wouldn't buy him a Lamborghini. And so he, he got his mom's car keys while his sister was sleeping. He got $3. He got in the car, and he drove, and he was on his way, he told the officer, to California to buy himself a Lamborghini. Now, y- you think about what was going on in that kid's head. He, he felt like he deserved, I guess, a Lamborghini. He saw the keys. He saw the car. He saw the $3. And in his mind, he's thinking, I think this could work out. I think this could get me what I want. It's, it's foolishness, right? We're, we're like that with our own sin. We, we think, okay, I, I have this desire, and I'm going to do these things, and these things are in no way going to pursue and accomplish joy, but, but I think maybe they will. Listen to what Struthers, in his book, again, Wired for Intimacy, says. He says, that men are in denial, not control. 
So what happens when they're confronted with this, this reality, that they're, they're confronted with the reality of their sin? He says that they claim they don't want to stop. They deny their sin. They minimize their sin. They normalize, justify, rationalize, or even celebrate their relationship with pornography. It becomes this insidious cycle that often ends in shame. And, and he goes on, he talks about, here's some cognitive traps. And again, this doesn't apply just to sexual immorality, but it's, it's kind of the, the story of Samson sets this as a, as a backdrop. Here's, here's some cognitive traps, some ways that our brain deceives us regarding our sin. We're, we're confronted with our sin, and our brain says, here, here's some examples of things our brain says. One, I, I'm entitled. I, I deserve this. I've, I've earned this. Yeah, maybe it's not right, but man, I have a hard life. I've, I've earned this. We deceive ourselves with thinking we're omniscient. Yeah, I, I know the people who say that I shouldn't do this are saying that, but you know what? They're bad people too. I, I know them. I know what they're thinking. Their motives aren't good. We respond with tricking ourselves into believing that we're being helpful. Look, I'm, I'm keeping my sin quiet to protect others. We're willing to deceive. I'm, I'm not sinning that often. We blame others. We, we've, we play the victim card. We're prideful. We objectify in, in terms of, the, of sexual morality. Look, this, this pornography or this, 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 um, this thing that I'm viewing, it's, they're just models. They're not real people. We respond with distractions. You know what? I've, I've been really stressed lately. I, I need to respond this way. Look, all, all these are ways that we deceive ourselves. Our heart wants what it wants. And in Samson, we see a willingness to deceive and be deceived as we pursue our idols. And here's what I want us to think about. Our, our pursuit of sin will allow us to be easily deceived about the danger we're in. Again, it's not just sexual morality. We're willing to hide our marital conflict. We're willing to hide our relationships with, with others. We're willing to, to hide our, our struggles with obedience to, to, to our parents. We're willing, you know, our, our parents want us to do something and we hide you know, we're kids, we're, we, we hide the, the food that we're sneaking, or we hide the argument we have with our We hide things. We hide the, the, the glass that we, we broke on accident. You know, we, we hide things, and our sin causes us to deceive. And, the, and what, what's happening, listen to this, what's happening is we're pursuing our flesh, we're pursuing our sin, and we're hiding things, and so we, 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 the sin is not being dealt with. Like Samson, we think, I, I'm strong enough. I, I can handle this. I can deal with this. I don't need, I don't need to let others know. And then the third thing in Samson. In Samson, we see our sin's downward spiral of destruction. Think about how Samson's life progressed. He began with this amazing relationship with his parents, or, or his parents had this amazing family relationship. And then he decides to pursue a, a marriage to a Philistine woman. And then he decides to pursue a, a sexual relationship with a prostitute. And then he decides to pursue this relationship with this woman, desperately wanting her love. But, but really, she's a woman who's, who's out for his destruction. And he continues and continues and continues to pursue it. And, and the text tells us, by, by the end, by the end of his life, by, by the end of this, his, his uh, relationship with Delilah there, at the very last part, what does, he, what does the text tell us about Samson? He doesn't even know that the Lord has left him. He's not even aware of it. 
Brothers and sisters, that's what sin will do. As, as we try to pursue joy while pursuing our flesh, the consequences of sin go far deeper than we can understand, and only too late might we realize I'm, I'm nowhere even near a relationship with God. Now, here's what I want to talk about real quickly then. Let's talk about what Samson reminds us about our Savior. Three things also. See, Samson, like all the, the characters in the book of Judges, all the people that God chooses to tell us about in the book of Judges, also points to the sufficiency of, of Christ, our, our ultimate judge, our ultimate deliverer, our, our ultimate savior. Number one, in Samson, in Samson, we are reminded of a savior who achieves victory for us by his holiness. So Samson is, is not a holy person, and yet he, he, he points us to the Savior who is completely holy, who achieves victory by his holiness. Samson was supposed to be holy. He was supposed to be set apart. He was supposed to be devoted to, to God. He was supposed to be an Azurite his life. He's not. Yet our Savior is. You and I, this is what I want you to understand, you and I are not saved by, by God making us good enough to earn our salvation. In other words, God doesn't say, okay, now you're saved. Now, I'm gonna, now you're going to start doing things as a saved person that eventually will allow you to be holy enough to enter heaven. That's not how it works. How do we become holy? We become holy because our Savior is completely, perfectly holy, and we receive his holiness by faith. And now God looks at us not because of, of and, and finds us acceptable, not because of our holiness that we've earned or worked for, even with his help. He looks at us and sees the perfect holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, in Samson, we are reminded of a Savior who achieves victory for us by the Spirit. You and I do not achieve victory by God giving us enough willpower to defeat sin. He gives us a person, the person of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit's work allows us to achieve the victory over sin, over, over lust, over greed, over our complacency in spiritual matters. The Spirit works through our, our lives to allow us to achieve victory. And then thirdly, finally here, in Samson, we are reminded of a Savior who achieves victory for us by his death. Samson leans against the pillars and, and, and pushes those pillars down and, and the, the people die, the Philistines die, and he achieves a victory for Israel by his death. But it's, it's a shadow. Christ, with his perfect death on the cross, achieves absolute and complete victory for us through his work. Christ is the king. And my victory over sin is not going to be won as I pursue my flesh. My victory over sin is not going to be won as I attempt to, to conceal my sin and hide my sin and as, as I allow my, my, my flesh to run rampant. That is not how I'm going to achieve joy in life. Samson tried it and failed tragically. My victory over sin is accomplished by my Savior. He lived a life of perfect holiness for me. He gives me the Spirit. And he allows me to not suffer the consequences of my sin by taking those consequences of sin for me. 
let me just speak to my brothers first. Brothers, um, God has called you to holiness. And, and like Samson, for, for some of us, the, the struggle with our flesh is going to be sexual immorality. For others of us, it's going to be a desire for, uh, for the esteem of the world. For others of us, it's going to be a desire for financial accomplishments. It's going to be a myriad of things and, and, and slightly different in every life. But, but the common denominator, the common struggle here, is a desire to exalt ourselves instead of God. Brothers, on, on, this, on this Mother's Day, maybe especially for those of you who are married, for those of you who may want to be married someday, uh, may God give you the, the victory over sin today. Ultimately for his glory, but, but also so that, so that his glory can be shown in your relationship with women. Brothers, single brothers, married brothers, God has not called us to fleshly living, but, but to holiness. And to my sisters out there this morning as well in your homes, I would encourage you, by God's grace, pursue victory over the flesh, not through works, not through concealment, not through further pursuit of the flesh, but through the Spirit. May God give us the ability this morning to pursue joy through our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we examine, Samson, as we examine Samson's tragic life, we're reminded of the destruction of our sin, but also we're reminded of the deliverance of our Savior. You and I are free this morning in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray this morning that you would be present with us. We pray for your victory over sin in our lives. And, and Father, for those of us who are tempted to conceal our, our struggles with sin, we would ask this morning that you would give us uh, freedom. We, we pray that you would allow us to, to seek out others who would encourage us. And we pray that we would achieve a victory not by our own works, but through the work of your Spirit, through the work of, of you, Father, by the, the death of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.